Again, let me just emphasize that if you missed any of these sessions, please get the previous two because what I'm saying is in sequence. I started talking last night that God is a good God, that God is a faithful God, that God loves us. And those are statements that all of us embrace, but the scripture says in Mark 7, 13, Jesus was speaking and he says, your traditions have made the word of God of none effect. Is that right? Making the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which you have delivered and many such like things do ye. Traditions, doctrines of men, void the power of the word. And so we say that, yes, God is a good God. But then what I started countering last night was the religion will turn around and say, well, God's the one that puts cancer on you. God's the one that controls tragedy. God's the one who uses the devil and sicks the devil on you. And if you have a problem, it's actually God trying to get your attention. Religion has taught us that our problems and our trials are actually good things. It just amazes me. You know, I didn't use this last night, but real quickly, let me just say this. At Deuteronomy chapter 28 list the blessings and the curses of the law. And it's just as if you had this huge uh, blackboard up here. And if on the left side over here, you wrote at the top blessings, and then you put a line down the middle, and then over on the right-hand side, it lists curses. Deuteronomy 28 says, verses 1 through 14, these are the blessings that will come upon you. And it lists prosperity, health, joy, Victory. Your enemies will come out against you one way, but flee seven ways. You'll be victorious and all of these things. It lists health as a blessing. It lists prosperity as a blessing. It lists joy and peace and victory as a blessing. Over on the other side, it says these are the curses that will come upon you. Now, I taught on this this morning that we've been redeemed from the curse of the law. But So these curses won't come on the New Testament believer because of Jesus. He became a curse for us and redeemed us from the curse of the law, Galatians 3.13. But nonetheless, it lists the curses and it says poverty is a curse. Sickness is a curse. Disease is a curse. The itch is a curse. Blasting, which is high winds. You might want to claim that one here in Houston when a hurricane comes through. That's a curse. Mildew is a curse. Vexation of your eyes and of your heart. Stress is a curse. And then it says every sickness and every disease which isn't numerated specifically, these are curses, all sickness and disease. So the Bible makes it very clear. These are blessings. These are curses. Today, the church basically has switched this. Oh, this cancer is actually a blessing in disguise. This is God giving this to me. And if you say that God wants to heal people, that's of the devil. Religion has switched it. So that now, being well is a blessing. I mean, being uh, sick is a blessing and being well is a curse. It's of the devil. It just defies logic. Anyway, I was countering all of that last night. And then that led to this morning talking about that there are a lot of things that happened in the Bible where God blasted people and put sickness on people and struck people. But you can't show me a single one of those instances where it was a blessing. It was always a curse. It was a punishment. It was a judgment. And the Old Testament law held people's sins against them. That's what the scripture says. He imputed people's sins unto them through the law. And the word impute means to hold to your account. Under the new covenant, all of our sins have been imputed to Jesus. And Jesus has suffered for our sins and God isn't holding your sins against you. Now that needs more explanation and I'm going to deal with that probably tomorrow and go in further into that about how all of our sins, past, present, and even sins you haven't even committed yet have already been forgiven and dealt with. Now that sounds nearly too good to be true. And people say, well, that's not what I've heard. That's one of the traditions of men that makes the word of none effect. I'm going to show this to you from scripture. And so anyway, God is not imputing sin unto us because the Old Testament law that imputed sin is now gone. And in the New Testament, it says, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Verse 18, and all things are of God who hath 
past tense, already reconciled us unto God by his son. Or reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. The next verse, that is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing men's trespasses unto them. This is the way that Jesus came. He didn't hold people's sins against them. There was a woman that was taken, I think it's John chapter 8, in the very act of adultery. And she was brought to Jesus and they said, what do you say that should be done? And they did this to trip him up. Because if he said he was preaching grace and he was preaching mercy, he was going in and eating with harlots and publicans and sinners. People that the religious realm had said that you are separated from God. God wouldn't even dare answer your prayer. God won't go into your house. God hates you because of your lifestyle. Jesus was fellowshipping with people that religion had rejected. And he was preaching mercy. And that's one of the reasons he had such big crowd because they were sick and tired of the legalism and the rejection and the punishment. Same thing's happening today. People are forsaking the church by droves because of the hypocrisy and the condemnation and the guilt and stuff like this. And Jesus was fellowshipping with the people that the church had said God wouldn't have anything to do with. And so they, they thought they had it. If he let this woman go when the Bible very specifically said in Leviticus chapter 18 that if anybody commits adultery, they have to be put to death. And if you don't put them to death, you have to be put to death. They thought they had him because if he condemned her so that they wouldn't kill him, he would lose his crowd because he had been preaching grace and mercy and showing kindness towards people who were sinners And his crowds would forsake him if he turned around and condemned this woman. But if he didn't condemn this woman, then they had the right to judge him and kill him. They had him either way he went, so they thought. But you know, the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of the world. And so Jesus just said, he that's without sin cast the first stone. He didn't say that what she did wasn't sin. He didn't condone it and say it's okay to commit adultery. What he did was extend mercy towards her and said, those of you that don't have any sin, cast the first stone. And he wrote on the ground. And I don't know what he wrote because the scripture doesn't say. But he wrote something that I believe convicted them. It says they all went away being convicted of their own conscience. Now this is just andeology. I'm not saying that this is what he did, but he could have wrote down Zacchaeus or one of their names, and have written Rachel underneath it, his mistress. (laughs) He could have written down another one that had been stealing money or somebody else that had been doing this. And he could could have been writing something that, man, these people all of a sudden realized, whoops, the jig's up. Amen. (laughs) Uh, And they got convicted and they all left. And he extended mercy towards a woman that was uh, under the Old Testament law was supposed to die. There's a difference between the way God dealt with people under the law and the way he deals with them under the New Testament. And it's amazing how the vast majority of Christians do not understand that and they try and mix the two and out of one side of their mouth talk about Jesus' forgiveness of our sins and out of the other side of their mouth, if you sin, God is going to judge you and you're going to be punished. And that's the reason God hadn't healed you and God won't answer your prayer if you got a sin in your life. If I really believe that, then the moment you got born again, I'd just kill you. I might go to hell, but that's the only way you'd ever get to heaven because I can guarantee you, you are, you do have sin. You have things that are wrong. Sin isn't only what you should be doing or shouldn't be doing, but sin is what you should be doing is what it says. It's either James 4, 17, to him that knows to do good and does it not to him it is sin. Is that James 4, 17 or is that, um, I get these two confused. There it is, James four seventeen. To him that knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. So sin is not only what you're doing bad, sin is what you should be doing that you're failing to do. Every one of you is supposed to love your wife the way that Christ loved the church. There's not a man in here that's fulfilled that perfectly. The women are supposed to reverence your husband the way that the body of Christ is supposed to reverence God. There's not a woman in here that's fulfilled that. We're supposed to be laying our life down for our brother. We're supposed to be praying one for another. According to Philippians chapter 2, we're supposed to esteem others higher than ourselves. Every one of us is failing to do that. All of us are missing it. And if you think that you've got to have every sin 
confessed and everything dealt with, you are in la-la land. You are deceived to think that you are walking truly holy. You might be holy compared to me or compared to somebody else, but you're still coming short. And anybody who's claiming that you're holy and that God's going to move in your life because you've got it all straightened out, you are operating under an Old Testament law mentality and you're deceived. Under the new covenant, God doesn't give you what you deserve. It is not based on your performance. You have a Savior and you have a relationship with God through the Savior and not through your own effort. That's what I was talking about this morning. And I tell you, that's imperative that people understand that. That is just essential. And there's very few Christians that clearly have that uh, figured out in your heart. Your own heart condemns you. The law strengthens your conscience and makes it come alive. And people who have a guilty conscience are people who live under the law. Man, that's powerful. There's so much I could say about that. What I want to do tonight, after I've made all of these statements, is to say that if God is not the one who's putting bad things on you, then why are there so many bad things happening? Well, there's one of two obvious answers, and that is we have an enemy, the devil, who's going about and he's attacking people and there are certain things that are from the devil or either it's us who is allowing it and the truth is there's probably a combination of the two. But what this does, it puts personal responsibility upon us and I think that this is the reason that the kind of doctrine that I'm describing from the Word and I believe that this is what the Word teaches, I think that this is why it's as rare as hen's teeth that people believe this. Because you know what? It makes you responsible. And we live in a society and a church culture that does not want to make anybody responsible. It's not your fault. It was done to you. You have no responsibility for being a homosexual. That's just the way that you were born. That's not true. It's always a choice. God gave made them Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. He didn't born, nobody was born homosexual. It's a choice. God loves you and you can be forgiven of that and there's life after homosexuality, but it's a choice. Don't blame God. God didn't make you that way. God didn't make you commit adultery. You have to accept responsibility and yet people today are trying to find a gene that made you an alcoholic, a gene that makes you fat. You don't have to receive any responsibility for your own weight. It's just you don't understand it's the way it is in my family. I have a type A personality and I can't help it. This is the way I was born. Wrong. You were born in sin. That's a character trait of sin that was acquired and it... Yes, you've got a sin nature, but you get born again. You get a new nature and you can live differently. You do not have to be a jerk because your parents were jerks. You can choose to be different. But see, people don't like that. They like to say, it's that woman that you gave me. That's what Adam did. God, it's, it's her fault and you're the one that gave her to me. Nobody wants to accept the responsibility. But the truth is, As long as you say that somebody else, society, the color of your skin, your economic situation, something that you can't control is the problem, then you can never be a victor. You'll always be a victim because you can't change other people. You can't change society. You can't change who you were born to, what time you were born, what town you were born in. Those things happen outside of your control. And if that's the problem then you're the victim. And this is the way that most people live their life is I'm a victim. There's nothing I can do about it. I'm telling you, that's not true. The Lord gave you a choice. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, he says, Behold, I call heaven and earth to record against you this day that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. God gave you the choice. He gave you a choice. And for you to say, I don't have any choice. I w- this is the way my genes are. It's my hormones. I, don't, I can't control it. Then you're invalidating the Word of God. The Word of God says you choose. It's your choice. And He even helped you. This should be a no-brainer. Choose life or death. Blessing or cursing. It shouldn't be a hard test. But just in case anybody's struggling, He says, A's the answer. Choose life. Amen. <laughs> he gave you the answer to this pop quiz. 
He told you which to choose. But it's your choice. As you think in your heart, that's the way that you are, Proverbs 23, 7. It's not as it happens to you, that's the way that you are. No, it's the way you process it. You can take people from the same family that were raised in in an alcoholic home, have the exact same gene pool, have the same environment, have the same family, have the same friends, and one will become an alcoholic and the other will go the other direction and hate it so much they go the opposite direction. They had a choice. It's wrong for you to sit there and say, I can't help it. You can't help it. I just can't help but gain weight. I just don't know what's happening. I, I just gain, I look at food and gain weight. That's not true. I don't know how it happens. That's not true. Most of you haven't been spoon fed since you were little babies. Nobody is pushing that food in your mouth. You are sticking everything you eat in your mouth. And I promise you, if you didn't eat anything, you would not gain weight. You are making choices that cause you to gain weight. Some people may have a greater disposition, but I can guarantee you every one of us can make choices and you could control your body. You could quit smoking if you wanted to. I had a woman come for prayer this last week who had COPD and she had emphysema and COPD. She could barely breathe. She was on oxygen and the woman just, she was all bent over and couldn't even take a deep breath. Her chest was just scarred and all of these problems. And uh, I said, are you still smoking? And she said, yes. And she wanted me to pray that she'd be healed. And I said, you know what? God loves you and God wants to heal you. But I said, if I drive this sickness out of your body and yet you're smoking, it's like driving him out the back door and leaving the front door and all the windows open. He's going to come back in seven times worse. I said, you aren't going to get free until you quit giving place to the devil. You're empowering him to do what he's doing. And she says, I can't, I can't stop. I said, you can stop smoking. She says, no, I can't. And I said, if I had a gun pointed to your head and if you smoke a cigarette, I'll kill you. Could you quit smoking? And she says, I think I could. And I said, see, you can quit. You just lack motivation. I said, you could do it. Every one of you could quit doing it. You could quit pornography. You can quit doing this stuff. You need to accept responsibility. And accepting responsibility is the first step to not being a victim anymore. And yet we have this mentality that I can't help it. It's just, and so it plays into this victim mentality for religion to come along and say, well, it's just up to God, whatever God's will is. Let's just pray and say, Lord, if it be thy will, and then you pray. And if the person falls over dead, oh, it must have been God's will. And if they get healed, you say, I prayed for that. You can't lose. But if you start believing that it's God's will for everybody to be healed, then you know what? If they don't get healed, you or them or something was wrong. Because if it was God's will, why didn't it come to pass? And I want to address part of that tonight and share. This is one of the most important things that I feel God ever showed me. And it's a balance between what is God's part and what is our part. What is it that God does and what do we do? This is where people miss it. They know that God can heal, but am I just supposed to pray and then wait on God? Or is there something that I can do? And this is where a lot of people are missing it is because they are waiting on God to do what he told them to do. And then there's a lot of us that have taken responsibility for doing things that only God is supposed to do. You got to have a clear idea. What is God's part? What is our part? How do we do this? And I tell you, this really has made a huge difference in my life. This is like a foundation of much of the stuff that God has shown me. Look at this in Ephesians chapter 2, and I'll use this verse to start talking about this. Ephesians chapter 2, and in verse 8, it says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Next verse says, Not of works, lest any man should boast. You are saved by grace through faith. 
And that not of yourselves. You can interpret that as that salvation is not of yourselves. It has to come from God. And that's certainly true. You can also say that that faith that you're saved by is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. You have to have God literally give you His faith. Faith comes by hearing. And when you hear, God's faith supernaturally enables you to believe and receive. And so you are saved by grace through faith. Now let me, this is really important. You're going to have to use your brain to get this. And I'm sorry, I know that most people don't come to think you want to be entertained. It's like a cheerleading deal. You want somebody to stand up here and rah, rah, and get you all excited. And, but you know what? If you'd use your brain for something besides a hat rack, it's amazing what you could receive from the Word of God. You've got to think to get this. But it says you're saved by grace through faith. You're saved by a combination of those two, not one or the other. And most of the body of Christ is divided into different groups. And you have the grace group over here that preaches it's just up to God. It's totally the grace of God, whatever God's will is. Like I had a man one time, I was believing for this little girl to be healed. And this pastor came to me and he said, how dare you think that you can do anything about healing? It's just up to God. If God wants her well, she'll be well. And if he doesn't, she'll die. It's just up to God. Whatever God, see, that's a, an extreme grace that everything is just totally up to God and He controls it and we don't have anything to do with it. That's not true. That is not true. But on the other hand, there is another segment of the body of Christ that it's all up to us. And so what they do is fast and pray and bombard heaven and they will intercede and they'll, if they don't get their answer, they'll get a prayer chain going and they'll put pressure on God and they'll get a hundred or a thousand people to twist God's arm and we're not going to let go until God comes out and they are going to make God move. That's usually called the faith group. And so we have the grace group and we have the faith group and the faith group are over there saying, man, you're just saying whatever will be, will be. And that's wrong. And then the grace group's over there. You're trying to manipulate God and you think it's all your power. What is the proper response? Notice that the scripture says you're saved by grace through faith. You're saved by the combination. If you take grace by itself and only emphasize grace, it'll kill you. If you take faith by itself and only emphasize faith, it will kill you. You aren't saved by grace. You aren't saved by faith. You're saved by grace through faith. It's the combination of the two. It's very similar to sodium and chloride. Did you know that sodium and chloride are both poisons? If you take enough sodium, it'll kill you. If you take enough chloride, it'll kill you. They're poisons. But if you mix them together, it becomes salt and you'll die without it. Did you know grace by itself will kill you if you don't balance it with the right degree of faith? Faith by itself will kill you if you don't balance it with grace. You've got to mix the two together. It has, you're saved by grace through faith. And, and so grace is God's part. Faith is your part. I want to try and distinguish here and show you how grace and faith work together. And what your part is and what God's part is. Let me give you some definitions. The word grace, and this is my own personal definition. The, um, the Strong's Concordance will define it as unearned, unmerited favor. There's lots of different ways of saying that. But it's basically everything that God is and everything that God has that is available to you completely independent of you. It doesn't have anything to do with you. It has everything to do with God. And if you have to do anything to be worthy of grace, then it's not grace. It's not grace if it demands your performance. Grace is something God did for you, independent of you, before you were ever born. It says in, in John chapter 1 that in Jesus, uh, we got grace upon grace. God poured grace out upon the world. I think that's John 1, 16. And we have received of His fullness uh, grace upon grace. Is that it? Grace for grace. And so grace came through the Lord Jesus Christ. The law came by Moses, but grace and truth 
came by Jesus Christ. So grace came to this earth through Jesus. That was 2,000 years ago before you and I existed, before we had sinned, before we had done anything wrong. So grace is independent of you. Grace existed before you ever had done anything to sin. God had already saved you by His grace. Jesus only died for sins one time. Jesus isn't dying for sins today. If a person gets born again tonight, we had five people born again last night and this morning. Did you know what? Jesus didn't die for them today. He died for them 2,000 years ago. Their sins were paid for before they ever existed and before they had ever committed a sin. That's grace. It has nothing to do with that person. And the truth is that every person who has ever breathed on this planet since the crucifixion of Jesus had their sins paid for. It says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, that He, speaking of Jesus, is the propitiation. That means the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus didn't only die for Christians. He died for the ungodly. The ungodly sins have been paid for. They just haven't accepted the payment. And since they reject Jesus as their payment, well, then they'll have to pay for those own sins. But the main sin that they will go to hell for is not the individual actions of sin, but rather the rejection of the payment for their sin. That's what's going to send people to hell is the rejection of Jesus, not homosexuality, lying, stealing, and adultery. Those are just symptoms of the sin nature that's inside. But it's the rejection of Jesus that is going to send people to hell. But the sins of the whole world have been paid for, but that doesn't mean people are saved because grace has provided salvation, but you aren't saved by grace alone. You're saved by grace through faith. Faith is your positive response to what God has done. And if there isn't a response of faith over here, then God's grace alone doesn't save you. It says in first, uh, in the let's see, Titus chapter 2, verse 11, that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men. Every person that has ever breathed on this planet has had grace provide salvation for them. And God has brought this truth of salvation and His grace that provides salvation to every person. Hitler had grace presented to him. Jesus paid for all of Hitler's sins the murder of millions of Jews, the terrible things that he did. Did you know that his sins were paid for and God brought that grace to him? But as far as we know, Hitler never responded in faith. And so grace doesn't alone save you. If it did, every person would be saved because God's grace is the same for everyone. It doesn't matter if you're the worst sinner in here or the best sinner in here. Jesus has saved all of us. His salvation, He's paid for every sin that you have ever or will ever do. Sin is really not the issue. Grace has already dealt with sin. The only issue is now, are you going to put faith in what God has done by grace? And see, you got to mix grace and faith together. So grace is what God has done for you, independent of you, prior to you, It has nothing to do with you. It is just the nature, the heart of God, that God so loved the world that He gave long before you were even born. God's grace has already provided it. God has already provided healing for you. By His stripes we were healed, 1 Peter 2, 24. It didn't say that if you'll believe, God will heal you. No, by His stripes you've already been healed. Healing has already been provided. It's a grace thing. And if you understand this, then how is God not going to give you what He's already given you? He's already done it. See, this is the reason it's so easy to get born again. Because salvation is presented as something that's already been accomplished. Your sins have already been paid for. And now, whoever will may come. And if a person says, but you don't know how bad I am, say, well, Jesus... I mean, Paul said he was the worst of all the sinners. He was the chief of sinners and God set him as an example. He murdered Christians. And if he can be saved, you can be saved. And we just keep telling people, no, your sins have already been forgiven. It's just a matter of whether you'll believe and receive or doubt and do without. But God's already provided it. How can you doubt that God will give you something that he's already done? 
And since salvation is presented, that grace is already over. It's already complete. It's a done deal. Your salvation is there. Now, are you going to receive it or are you going to reject it because you don't believe God? See, this is the reason it's so easy to get saved because you are putting faith in God's grace, not faith in you. You are believing that God, you've already done this. I'm going to believe what you did. But then after you get born again, you know what most Christians do? They quit putting faith in what God did for them and they start saying, oh, now I've got to live holy. And if I'll pray and if I'll study the word and if I'll go to church and if I'll pay my tithes and if I'll do this, this and this, then I can make God do this. That's not how you got saved. You didn't do something to make Jesus save you. You heard the good news that he already loved the world. He already paid for your sins. He already had done it. And you responded to God's grace. But then after we get saved, religion has taught us now God is going to respond to you, how holy you are. And you got to live holy. And unless you fast and pray and do this and this and this, God won't bless you. And most Christians believe that faith is something we do to make God move. We have these statements about faith moves God. I want you to know faith doesn't move God. God's not the one that needs to move. God's not stuck. Faith doesn't move God. The Lord anticipated every problem that the human race could ever have. He's already forgiven your sins. He's already healed your body. He's already commanded prosperity upon you. Before you ever had a problem, God had made the supply. Jesus only died one time 2,000 years ago, and now he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. He's not taking stripes on his back. He's not healing people today. He's already provided healing. He bore the sins, the sickness, the disease of the whole world 2,000 years ago, and it's already a done deal. Jesus doesn't have to move to heal you. He's already healed. And he placed this supernatural raising from the dead power on the inside of us. The way you get healed today isn't by doing something and then God rewards you with healing. No. Well, the way you get healed is by finding out that by his stripes, I was healed. It's already done. And all you do is just respond positively to what God has already done. Now, if you understood that, then when your enemy, the devil, who's the accuser of the brethren, comes to you and begins to say, you hadn't fasted enough, you hadn't prayed, what makes you think you're worthy? You'd immediately say, well, it doesn't have anything to do with my worthiness. God, by grace, has already provided it. And it's just a matter of either me believe and receive or doubt and do without. I'm just going to believe and receive. It's already done. So I'll just take advantage of it. And Satan can't corner you. Satan can't condemn you. But the vast majority of Christians, see, think faith is something you do to move God. You've got to go do something and then God rewards you with anointing. God rewards you. You know, when I talk about that, I've seen miracles happen and blind eyes open and deaf ears open and people raised from the dead. Pastor Dean down here has seen a, a 10 people or a dozen people raised from the dead. Pastor Bobby, I think, has prayed and seen people raised from the dead. When you say something like that, people think, oh man, you must be holy. I wonder what you did to get that kind of power and anointing. Did you know every person in here, the Lord gave you a command to go heal the sick, cleanse the leper, and raise the dead. Every one of you have raising from the dead power on the inside of you. These men aren't holier than the rest of it. I can guarantee you, Pastor Dean's not holier than anybody here. It's not his holiness that makes this worse. But see, people, oh man, if you've seen somebody raised from the dead, you must be holy. No, that's not it. Every one of us have raising from the dead power. Some people have learned that it's not based on our goodness and we just receive it and we take our authority and speak in faith about what Jesus did. Other people out here are thinking, oh, I could never see a person raised from the dead because I haven't prayed enough and I know I'm not studying the word and I'm not holy enough and it's your unbelief And the fact that your faith is in you and not in God's grace that is hindering you, you haven't learned the good news that 
Faith doesn't move God. God moved before you existed. God's already provided everything. You don't need... God's not surprised by anything that's going on in your life. He doesn't have to go do something new to get you set free. He's already healed you. He's already saved you. He's already forgiven you. He's already given you joy and peace. Before you ever had a problem, God had already created the supply. His grace provided everything before you ever had a problem. You don't, God's not going to respond to you. You have to learn to respond to him. That's what faith is. Faith is your positive response to what God has already done. You know, I'm saying things here tonight that it took me 20 years to learn. And some of you are listening to this and this is like it's just totally off the page from where you've been. And you're thinking, well, what's the big deal? If this isn't making an impact on you, if this isn't helping explain things, if this isn't a radical statement to you, then you didn't hear what I've said. This is radically different than what religion is preaching. Religion is preaching, do good and then God will bless you. Study the word and God will give you more anointing. Be right and God will answer your prayers. Do wrong and God's not going to answer your prayers. God's liable to let you die of cancer. The reason nothing's working is because you aren't holy enough. That's religion. And it's teaching that God responds to you. I'm saying God by grace has already provided everything and faith is just your positive response to God. Here's another way of saying it that faith only appropriates what God has already provided by grace. If God hasn't already provided it, your faith can't make it happen. You can't make God do anything. You can't move God. If God hadn't already moved and provided it, your faith can't make it happen. Now see, this would solve a lot of problems. For instance, I mentioned this during the offering, but you know what? God said that wealth gotten by vanity takes away the life of the owners thereof. If you get wealth quickly, it's a demonic thing. God doesn't do that. He wants you to grow little by little and wax great. And so God has not provided for anybody the combination to the lottery. That's not a part of his atonement. God hadn't provided that by grace. And yet there's people that think, I can have whatever I want. So bless God, I'm saying I'm going to win the lottery. God's given me the right combination. Jesus, cha-ching, amen. You put a quarter in and I'm going to pull this and God's coming through. And you're frustrated about why it hadn't happened yet. The reason it hadn't happened is because God's not going to respond to you. You can't make him do something. He's not going to give anybody the lottery combination. That's against the law. God's not going to break the law. He's not going to fix the lottery for you. You can't make him do that because he hadn't provided that for you. Look at this verse over in Mark chapter 11 and verse 24. Mark chapter 11 and verse uh, 24. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire, when you pray... Believe that you receive them and you shall have them. Now this is a great faith verse. And I'm not against faith. I'm just saying that faith needs to be tweaked so that we make sure that we aren't trying to move God, manipulate God, and instead we're just responding to what God has already done. But there are people that have taken this verse and have used this to say, well, man, whatsoever I desire. Well, I desire a new wife. I desire a new husband. So I confess with my mouth and believe in my heart that I receive and praise God, I shall have it. And you wonder why things aren't working. It's because God didn't provide adultery for you in the atonement. That's not a part of what grace is provided. You can't make God do anything. God's not gonna help you commit adultery. You can't take this verse and say, I confess with my mouth that I'm gonna steal a million dollars and they will not catch me because I confess it with my mouth and believe it in my heart and I've got it. And I'm standing on Mark eleven twenty four. It won't work because God didn't provide thievery for you and lies and deception and dishonesty in the atonement. It hasn't been provided and your faith can't make him do it. All faith can do is just reach out and appropriate what God has already done. There was a woman in Arlington, Texas who um, 
Steve and I were talking about, anyway, I won't go into who it is. But there is a woman in Arlington, Texas, who actually had a Bible school. And in this Bible school taught Mark eleven twenty four that you can have whatsoever things you desire. And her desire was to marry Kenneth Copeland. And so she confessed that Kenneth Copeland was her husband. And the, the, you know, the little minor detail of Kenneth being married to Gloria, the way she dealt with this was that she just cursed Gloria and command Gloria to die and get out of the way. And in her Bible school, she had a wedding dress and a scripture up there that says, Mark eleven twenty four. whatsoever things you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive. And she had a wedding where she married Kenneth in the spirit. He wasn't there, but in the spirit, she married Kenneth and she cursed Gloria and just waited on Gloria to die and get out of the way. That's been 30 something years ago. And guess why? I don't know if this woman is still alive, but Gloria is. And Kenneth and Gloria are still married and it didn't come to pass. And of course, most of us just say, oh, well, of course, why? nobody would do that. Why not? It says whatsoever. Isn't that a whatsoever? Whatsoever you desire. This woman desired Kenneth Copeland and desired Gloria. To why can't you stand on Mark eleven twenty four and kill a person and marry their spouse? Why, why can't you do that? Whatsoever you desire, just say it, believe it, and if you doubt not, it shall come to pass. You know why that won't work? Because God, by grace, did not provide you with murder and adultery as a part of what he provided Faith doesn't make God do anything. Faith only reaches out and appropriates what God has already provided. This would give maturity and stability to you and take away a lot of the weirdness where people are trying to use their faith to win the lottery and to get somebody else's mate and to use it to hurt this person over there just totally selfish because God didn't provide for any of those things. And another thing it would do, if you understood that God's already provided it and faith isn't making God do something, it's only appropriating what he's already provided, then it would take the struggle out of faith to where you didn't have to make God do something. Instead, you're just, Father, I receive what you've already provided. It is so much easier to lose something that you have than it is to go get something that you don't have. That's a big statement right there. It is so much easier just to say, Father, thank you that the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead has now been placed on the inside of me. I have raising from the dead power on the inside of me. Now that's true of every born again believer according to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 19. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is on the inside of you. Every person who's born again has raising from the dead power on the inside of you. And yet there are some of you that have hurts, pains, paralysis, sickness, disease, depression, discouragement. And you've got this raising from the dead power right here. Just inches, inches from your born again spirit is raising from the dead power and you can't even get your hangnail healed. You can't even get over a headache. And yet you got raising from the dead power. What's the problem? Because grace alone doesn't release the power of God. You've got to learn to respond positively to what he has already provided instead of trying to do something to make God give you something that he hasn't done yet. Most people see healing as something that hasn't taken place. And they say, well, it hasn't. I've got a doctor's report to prove that it hasn't. All a doctor can test is your physical body. They can't check your spirit. In the spirit, you got raising from the dead power on the inside of you. You got this resurrection power. Every one of you have been healed by the stripes of Jesus. 1 Peter 2.24 where it says, By his stripes you were healed is a true statement. In the spirit, you already have the grace of God that has brought healing, that has brought deliverance and salvation. It's already there. But most of us, instead of trying to release what God has already done through thankfulness and just resting in him and trusting it, we are trying to get God to do something, which is actually unbelief. We don't believe that it's already done. 
The Lord said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And yet we typically come into church and, oh God, we ask you to come and be with us tonight. Oh God, just come. Oh God, send forth your power. You know what that is? Unbelief. It's quiet in this Presbyterian church. Some of you are thought, what's wrong with that? He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Where two or three are gathered together, I'm in your midst. And you're asking him to do what he said he's already done. You know why you're begging God to come? Because you don't believe he's here because you haven't felt a goosebump. Nobody's run the aisles. Nobody screamed and shouted, fallen on the floor and bounced on the floor. And because you haven't seen anything, well, then God must not be here. No, he's here. It just means that you're carnal. And you can't believe that there's anything going on that you can't see, taste, hear, smell, or feel. And so if you can't see it in the physical, then you just don't believe that the spiritual realm exists and you don't believe that God's done anything. But He's here. And faith is the ability to see what you can't see. Faith is the ability to see what's in the spirit realm instead of in the physical realm. Faith is when you say, Father... I don't see anything. I don't feel anything. I just got a bad report. I feel bad as a matter of fact. But you know what? I know that the word says that you'll never leave me nor forsake me. I know you're here. I know I've got the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And I am refusing to give in to what I feel. I give in to what I believe. And I thank you that this resurrection power is now being released. And what you do is start releasing what God has already provided. That'll work every time. But for you to try and get God to do something like, God, why haven't you healed? God, don't you love this person? All of those are criticisms of God that are totally invalid and expressing your unbelief, not faith. And oh God, stretch forth your hand. Oh God, come and move. Oh God, send revival as if it was up to God whether we get revival. That usually goes over about like that. Man, I've been praying for revival for 20 years. How much good has it done? Body of Christ has spent more time praying for revival. They've had millions of people pray for revival and things are getting worse. And if you don't think they're getting worse, you just need to pull your head out of the sand and look at the news someday and see what's happening. There's some bad things going on in our world. We aren't in the midst of revival It's not up to God to send revival. If it was up to God and if we could beg and plead and twist his arm and make it happen, it would have happened. You know, the truth is God has already sent revival. On the day of Pentecost, he poured out his spirit and he said, this promise is unto you and unto your children and unto them that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. God never has taken back his spirit. He's never turned off the spigot. God hasn't quit sending his power. You know what the problem is? that that anointing is now in us. And it's us that have the spigot cut off. And we're asking God to, oh, save these people. Pour out your spirit. Let people be responsive. That's not going to come from the outside. That power is on the inside of you. If you want to see revival, start believing that God has given it to you. Appropriate it. Release it. Raise somebody from the dead and you'll have all the revival you can handle. (laughs) It's absolutely true. That's the way that revival happened in the Bible. They would go in and they would see people healed and miracles happen and the whole city would turn to the Lord. We're just praying in our prayer closet. You wouldn't dare talk to your neighbor if your life depended on it because they might criticize you and cause you a fanatic. And so lest anybody be embarrassed and lest anything bad happen, you just go and spend hours praying that God saves your neighbor, but you aren't sowing any seeds. You wouldn't talk to them. That's a cop-out. That's not the way that it works. The Lord told you to go heal the sick, cleanse the leper, raise the dead. He didn't tell you to pray for the sick. Now, there's examples of people praying for the sick, but the only commands in the New Testament, he says, go heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, cast out devils, raise the dead. That's God's will. He told you to do it. God has put his power on the inside of you. By grace, we are all full of God. If you've been born again and baptized in the Holy Spirit, God's power is on the inside of you. And it's not God's turn to go cause revival. It's us that causes revival by going out and speaking the word and releasing the power of God. 
You will do more to occasion revival by getting fired up, find out who you are, go out and tell the truth, speak the truth to somebody. People's lives will be changed and you'll have more revival than you'll ever get by staying on your knees and begging God to do what he told you to do. I know people don't like that, but it's the truth. It's the truth. Brothers and sisters, God told us to heal the sick. We're saying, oh God, pour out your power and start healing the sick. He told you to heal the sick. It's not your power. It's God's power. But it's in you by grace and you by faith release what God has already provided. To me, this revolutionized my life when I saw these things because you know what? It, it taught me instead of me begging God, no God, please heal this person. God, by grace, has already healed every person that will ever be healed. There has never been a sickness. There's not a cold, a hangnail, the slightest thing up to the worst thing that has ever hit any individual member of the body of Christ that Jesus hasn't already borne and paid for that. Before anybody who's alive today that has any sickness, before they were ever born, God had already healed them of all of those diseases. And he had put that healing power on the inside of them once they get born again. You've already got it done. You don't have to ask God to heal you. Some of the greatest miracles I've ever seen, I never asked God to heal anybody. I just took authority and commanded and spoke. And saw my son raised from the dead. Seen other people raised from the dead. Seen blind eyes open without ever asking God to heal. In the second chapter of the book of Acts, Peter and John were going into the temple. And they saw this man who was lame. Excuse me, not the second chapter, the third chapter of the book of Acts. And they saw this man who was lame from his mother's womb. And Peter looked at him and said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I unto you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And they reached down and grabbed the man by the hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle received strength. And he went walking and leaping and praising God. They said, such as I have. Did you know they'd get kicked out of nearly any church in Houston for saying that? People say, oh, you don't have any power. It's all God. Well, sure it's God, but it's in you. It's already been done. Grace, it's already accomplished. And he put raising from the dead power on the inside of you. And the truth is you do have it. They didn't pray and ask God to heal. They said, such as I have, give I unto you. And they took charge and they commanded it to come forth. The body of Christ, see, is basically begging God to please heal. When the Bible says he's already done it. By his stripes, you're already healed. He's already generated the power. He put this power on the inside of you and it's your faith that activates what God has already done. And once you see that it's already done, then you don't struggle to wonder, oh God, will you back me up? Will you do it? He's already done it. How can you doubt that he'll do what he's already done? It takes all the struggle out of it. You've already got it. I've got a teaching out there, a book and CDs and DVDs entitled, You've Already Got It, So Quit Trying to Get It. You've already got it. God's already given you everything. It says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, it says, According as His divine power hath given unto us all... Or excuse me, I guess that's verse 3. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us glory and virtue. God has already given us everything. Now all we need is a renewed mind to release and to draw out what God has already placed on the inside of us. It's like having a well. And in this well you got life-giving water. Could you imagine a person sitting at the mouth of that well and praying, Oh God, please give me something to drink. I'm dying of thirst. Oh God, please give me water. And the water's right there, but they won't draw it out. They're just waiting on God to put it in their mouth, to drown them in it, to let it, let it fall out of heaven. And the truth is they got this well and they never use it. That would be foolish. This is what the body of Christ is doing. We already have the Spirit of God living on the inside of us. We already have all knowledge is what it says 
so many different places. First uh, John chapter 2, verse 20, that you have an unction from the Holy One and you know all things. You don't know all things up here in your little peanut brain, but in your spirit, we have the mind of Christ. First Corinthians 2, 16. We know all things. We've got the life of God living on the inside of us. Jesus is in us. Christ in us. The hope of glory. Colossians 1, 27. And on and on. All of these things. And yet we're saying, oh God, please come. If God could be confused, I believe he'd be confused like saying, I know I promised them somewhere in there that I'd never leave them nor forsake. And yet they're asking me to come. Don't they believe? Didn't they hear that? Didn't they hear the scripture that says, Lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. And we say, Lord, just go with us as we leave this place. What a stupid prayer. Stupid prayer. Stupid prayer. Dumb to the second power. Dumb, dumb. God, come. God, don't go. Go with me. Take not your Holy Spirit. Oh, God, heal me. When he says, by my stripes, you were healed. Oh, God, bless me. When he says, you are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1, 3. You know, if God could be confused, I believe he'd be scratching his head saying, what do they want? Don't they, you know, read the book. I know I said it in here someplace that you've already got these things. Again, I'm not sure that all of you understand how radical some of the things I'm saying are. But this is just like in the opposite direction from most Christians' experience. Most Christians believe God can do anything. He has done nothing, but he could. And if I would pray hard enough, and if he won't do it for me, if I'll get the prayer chain going, and if we'll get a hundred people, we'll put so much pressure on him, he's got to move, amen. And that's what most people do. Most people believe that fasting and prayer, I had a question about this today, and somebody says, the way you're talking, you're saying that fasting doesn't move God. It doesn't. Fasting doesn't make God move in your life anymore. Fasting doesn't make God love you anymore. It doesn't make God give you any more anointing. It doesn't give you any extra pull or power with God. Fasting has zippo, zilch, nada, zero to do with God loving you more or blessing you more. And some of you are immediately offended like, well, man, no, there's promises about fasting. Matthew 17, 21, this kind goeth not out, but by much prayer and fasting. That's talking about this kind of unbelief. Matthew 17, 20, unbelief is the subject. And there are certain types of unbelief that you have to fast to get it out. But what fasting does, it changes your heart towards God. It removes the distractions and the cares of this life that get us away from God and and make us hardened towards God. So fasting softens our heart towards God, but it doesn't soften God's heart towards us. Fasting doesn't add anything to it. If the name of Jesus and faith in the name of Jesus didn't get it for you, neither will fasting. Fasting doesn't do anything. It changes you. It doesn't change God. Holiness doesn't make God love you more. God's are everything that God is ever going to do came through Jesus 2,000 years ago. He's not doing anymore. He's not saving people today. He's not healing people today. He's not delivering people today. He did all of that for the whole human race 2,000 years ago. Every person that has ever been demonized was delivered through Jesus and has had that power already produced so that there isn't a single person that has to live under depression, under demonic oppression. Every person that has ever been sick has had all of their sickness paid for and the healing power of God that it takes to heal every sickness has already been provided and generated. God has already done his part. If he hasn't, then it's not going to get done because he's not healing people today. It was by his stripes you were healed. That happened 2,000 years ago in Herod's judgment hall. He's not taking stripes today. Jesus isn't healing people today. He healed people 2,000 years ago. He saved people 2,000 years ago. He delivered people. He loves people. All of his part is done. Grace is over. And it's the same. It doesn't fluctuate because it was provided for you before you did anything good or bad. Therefore, your good didn't make him love you more. Your bad didn't make him love you less. God loves you independent of you. He loves you because he is love and not because you are lovely. 
And basically religion has missed this and religion is saying, oh no, God, everything he's done is just dependent on how holy you are and how much you pray and how much you study the word and go to church. That's voiding grace. And it's meaning that your faith is what's moving God and God's responding to you. No, you're saved by grace through faith. Faith just appropriates what God has already provided. God's already provided it. He's already done everything and it doesn't have anything to do with your goodness. And so somebody says, man, great news. I can go live like the devil because it's all God's grace. No, if you live like the devil, then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. If you aren't walking in the word and meditating in the word, instead you're out here living for the devil, unbelief, sickness, disease, poverty, hurt, heartache comes by cooperating with the devil. And if you go out here and live in sin, you're going to suffer because of it. Even though God's grace is provided, your faith won't be up to where it is unless you're seeking God and studying the Word. So yes, your actions, your holiness is important because it changes your heart. But God's heart doesn't change because you're holy. God's heart doesn't change because you're unholy. Your heart changes based on your holiness or unholiness. It's important for you to live holy so that you can stay sensitive and so that you can listen to God. The things that I'm sharing with you, brothers and sisters, I did not get watching as the stomach turns on the television. I've spent a lot of time studying and praying and seeking the Lord. You don't get this kind of stuff listening to the world. The knowledge of this world is death. It's contrary to this. And most of us are so plugged into the world that you know what? This is just like foreign to us. Because we haven't heard the word of God. So you need to seek God. But don't ever think that God is responding to you. No, when you're seeking God, that's you having a positive response to God. And there are things that you can do that will release the power of God. But there's nothing you can do to make God do something. God has already provided it. But there's things you can do to block it. There's things that you can do to unblock it. There's things that you can do to release the power of God. And I tell you, if you understand the little things that I've talked about here tonight, this could radically, radically change everything. You would move from a person who's trying to manipulate God and twist God's arm and force God to do something to a person who is resting in the goodness of God and you just understand that, man, God's a good God. God's already provided everything. And it's not up to me trying to get God to do it. It's just a matter of me getting rid of this unbelief and fear that I've got in learning how to rest. Amen. Learning how to trust that God's already done it. Man, it is so much easier to rest than it is to work. It's so much easier just to trust that, Father, you've already done it. And I don't have to force it. You know, everything I've spoken against tonight, I've done. I've done all of that. There's probably not a person in here that prayed harder for revival. I had all night prayer meetings, and this is before I spoke in tongues. And you know, before you speak in tongues, you can pray for the whole world in 30 minutes. We started all night prayer meetings, and we never had a one of them that went all night. Usually by 11 or 12, everybody was gone but me. And I'd hang out until 1 o'clock or 2 o'clock. And then I'd get frustrated and go home. But man, I studied all of the revivals. I prayed. I actually, one time, I was praying for Arlington, Texas. And I was calling down the power of God and just, God, I'm not going to let you go until you pour out your power. And, oh, and I was just screaming and yelling and yelling at God. And finally, I heard myself say this. I said, God, if you love the people of Arlington, Texas, half as much as I do, we'd have revival. And as soon as I said that, my lightning fast mind figured something was wrong with the way I was praying. And yet I can guarantee you that either you or somebody you know has prayed this same way. You're calling God's power down. You're interceding for Houston, for America, thinking that you're going to make God move. God loves people. He loves this nation. He loves this town more than you could ever think of. Matter of fact, if you've got a desire to see people saved and things to happen, why do you think you have it? It's because the love of God's already working. You and your natural self don't give a rip about anybody but yourself. 
If you love other people, it's because God is already moving on you. It's God that caused you to want that. This whole thing of begging God to save. I had a woman come up and she said, would you please pray? And she was crying and she says, I've been praying for my husband for 20 years. Would you please plead with God and help me to get God to save my husband? And I said, no, I won't do that. This woman just looked at me like, why wouldn't you do that? And I said, you know, the way you're talking, you're implying that it's up to God whether he gets saved or not. And that if God wanted to, he could get this man saved. And for whatever reason, God just hadn't been answering your prayer and he's letting your husband go to hell. And she looked at me and she says, well, what's the deal? And I said, God's already forgiven him. God's already paid for his sins. He's already done everything by grace. It's just a matter of will your husband receive. Now I said, if you want me to agree with you, that labors will come across his path, that God will help you to be the wife you're supposed to be so that you can be a better witness, so that, you know, different things can happen. I said, I'll pray all that. But I said, there's nothing I can do that'll make God love your husband any more than he does. He already sent his son and died for you. God loves people more than you love them. For you to be praying and begging God and thinking that you are making God save a person is the height of arrogance. God wants those people born again more than you ever thought about. You don't have to plead with God. What you got to do instead is start thanking Him. Father, thank you that you have already forgiven them. And according to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, it's the God of this world that has blinded their eyes. And so I take my authority as a believer. You've given me authority over the devil. And so now I exercise it and I command this blindness over this person to depart. I command the reason to come back to them in the name of Jesus. I pray Matthew 9, 38, that laborers will come across their path that'll speak the word to them. Father, if they're in a bar right now, I take my authority as a believer and loose your power that you've given me and speak laborers across the path into the bar. I pray that somebody who gets drunk will start preaching the gospel to them or whatever, but they're going to hear the word of God. Or John 14, 26, bring back to their remembrance the things that you've already said to them through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we send the word and heal them and deliver them from all their destruction, Psalms 107, 20. And that's the way you pray for the lost people, not begging God, but just taking your authority and saying, God, I know you love them now. Here I am releasing this power through me. I speak life over them. And quit begging and pleading with God and saying, oh God, why haven't you done anything? Every time you do that, it's just a step of unbelief that is stopping the power of God from flowing through you. Every time you beg God to pour out his spirit, no God, would you please do something? You're denying the fact that he says he poured out his spirit upon all flesh and the promise is now unto you and unto your children and unto everyone. And you're saying it's God's fault and you're impugning his character and you're stopping the flow of God. That's good stuff. I tell you, brothers and sisters, if you're listening... This is answering some questions. There is so much religious activity. There is so much bombarding of heaven, praying, begging, binding, loosening, and so little results. Because we aren't appropriating what God has already provided, we're trying to make God do something. And God's not going to be intimidated by you or anybody else. You can't make God do anything. God doesn't need to move. We need to move. We need to start believing. We need to rise up and take our authority. It's totally different.